Well, let's turn to John chapter 20 and to uh, look at the, uh, the account of Jesus appearing to Thomas. Um, doubts come to every person. Every single one of us faces doubts. They come to you whether you're a Christian or not. Uh, they come to the Christian. Doubts about the truth of it all. Doubts about the existence of God. Doubts about the goodness of God, the wisdom of God, even the love of God. If God is loving, why would he allow this to happen to me? And Sometimes we, we slide into doubt gradually. Sometimes we crash into it suddenly because something happens. And sometimes doubt slides into our thinking, weaseling its way in. And sometimes doubt pops up like a jack-in-the-box. And we wonder, where did that come from? Nothing seems to have happened that has brought it on, but this question mark came into our heads. Is this all true? And you need to know that that happens to every Christian. That's part of the Christian life. That doubt hits us. And it's also the same for the person who isn't a Christian. Maybe doubts uh, to do with the, the truth of the Bible. Doubts about the, the claims that are made in it. Maybe doubts about what is life for? Why am I here? Is there a God? Maybe there is. And you know, if you're not trusting in Jesus this morning, if you're not yet a Christian, those doubts that you have, those things that keep you from putting your trust in Jesus, let me encourage you to doubt those doubts, to question them to take time to fact-check them. Weigh them up. Investigate them and see whether they're true. Look at them to see, well, actually, if they're the genuine reason you won't commit. Sometimes we manufacture reasons, but they're not the real reason. Check them out, those doubts, those questions. And weigh them up to see if they're worth holding on to in, in, in the light of what God promises in his word. And just as Christians need to question our assumptions and make sure they're true, so should you. you. You owe it to yourself. And whether you're a Christian or not yet a Christian, you can come to Jesus with those doubts. You know, there's a lovely moment in Mark chapter 9 when a father asks Jesus if he's able to heal his son. And Jesus queries that little word, if, if if you can. And he says to him, everything is possible for the one who believes. And we read immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. What a great prayer. I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't say to him, well, off you go and get rid of all your doubts and then come back to me. He heals the man's son because Jesus is an encourager of those who come to him with their doubts. So you can come to him and say, I want to believe. Help me overcome my doubts. But what's all this got to do with Thomas? Well, he's often called Doubting Thomas, isn't he? That's how he's known. He's one of the few disciples that we, we know a little bit more of from Scripture. And he's known by this nickname, Doubting Thomas. And I want us to grasp, first of all, 
that Thomas Dow was very different to what we've just talked about. The first point to note here is Thomas's unjustified doubt. Thomas's unjustified doubt. You see, we could call some of our doubts justified. Something happens, or questions need to be answered. Something terrible happens and we wonder, how could God allow that? They have immediate reasons that make them understandable. Well, of course, given that God is true and, and faithful, no doubt is ultimately justifiable. But some have more immediate cause and we can understand why we have them. But what Thomas has here are unjustified doubts. Unjustified doubts. And it's easy for our justifiable doubts to slip into unjustified doubts, into persistent unbelief. And so we need to recognize the marks of these unjustified doubts so that we can guard ourselves against them. And you see, instead of being encouraged by Jesus, like the, the father in Mark 9, Thomas is rebuked by Jesus. And so I want us to ask a couple of questions. Why call it unjustified? And what leads to these unjustified doubts? So why call it unjustified? We read that when Jesus appeared to the disciples previously, Thomas hadn't been there. We see this in verse 25, or verse 24. When, now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. And then we read in verse 25, so the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. What's Thomas's reaction? He said to them, Unless I see the nail marks on his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Well, you know, we could have a lot of sympathy. These people are telling Thomas that the man Thomas saw crucified, dead and buried, is alive again. It's a, it's a huge ask, isn't it? But think about it. These are ten of his closest friends. Men that he has spent the last three years trekking all over Judea, Galilee, Samaria and further afield. In their company, he's worked miracles with them, he's taught alongside them, he's struggled with them, he's had doubts alongside them, and they've been together through thick and thin. They're, they're the ones speaking to him. They're telling him this. And they keep on telling him, that's the tense that's used here, they keep saying to him over the course of this week, Jesus is alive, he's alive. And add to that, that Jesus hadn't just appeared once, after his resurrection, it appeared to Mary Magdalene, to the other woman, to Simon Peter, to the two men on the road to Emmaus, and to the disciples. All on the previous Sunday. And they're all telling Thomas, he's alive, he's alive. And then there's something else. There's a marked change in the disciples. In Luke 24, verse 45, we read these words. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. The disciples went in a moment from not getting what the Old Testament, we call the Old Testament, was saying, to understanding it and seeing its connection, to seeing how it pointed forward to Jesus, to, to understanding that this and that and all the things we thought of with the boys and girls 
we're pointing to Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. That Jesus was what it was all. They had this new understanding. And you can imagine Thomas talking, and they're going, Thomas, Thomas, do you know this bit of the Old Testament? Well, it points to Jesus and that bit and that bit and that bit. And Thomas should have been wondering, how do you know this stuff? What happened that you know it? So his friends have seen the risen Jesus more than once. They this blazing new understanding of the scriptures and how they spoke of Jesus. And yet Thomas says, I will not believe it. Or I will never believe it. He doesn't say, I can't. Or I just can't get my head around it. He refuses the evidence of the disciples' testimony. He refuses the evidence of their new understanding. One writer calls it unreasonable obstinacy. In spite of all the evidence, in spite of all that is in front of him, he's persisting in unbelief. And then when Jesus does appear, what does he say to Thomas? He says, stop doubting and believe. Literally, stop disbelieving and start believing. Stop disbelieving. Stop being faithless and believe. So, was it justified or unjustified? Well, we see it's, it's very much unjustified this doubt. But what led to it? What brought Thomas to this point of obstinate doubt so that we can guard ourselves? Well, we're not specifically told, but there's at least two clues that we should note. There's Thomas's temperament. Thomas's temperament. We, we meet Thomas in a couple of places in John's Gospel. We meet him in John 11 when Lazarus is sick and dies. And Jesus says that they're going to go and see the family now. And the disciples are concerned that, that this is dangerous, that the Jews would try to kill him. And Jesus says it's going to be safe. He says it's safe in daylight to do these things. And Thomas, he says, let us go that we may die with him. Hold on. Jesus has just said it's going to be safe. But Thomas his temperament is that of the, either maybe the pessimist or the, the, the person who just sees the facts and that's all they see. And he sees the threat. Never mind what Jesus says. He sees the threat. He's blinkered. That's all he sees. And he won't listen to what Jesus says. His commitment is admirable. Let us go that we may die. But his temperament leaves him vulnerable to not believing what Jesus is saying. And in John 14, we find the same. Jesus says that he's going to prepare a place for them and that if he goes, he'll come back and take them to be with him where he is. And then he says that they know the way. And Thomas says, well, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus has just told them that they know the way and that Jesus himself is coming back for them. But, but Thomas, sort of this... This realist, blinkered realist, looks down and says, No, this is all I can see here. I don't know what you're talking about. How can we know the way? And that being deeply anchored to what's in front of his face is going to leave him doubting the things that aren't in front of his face. And we need to know our own temperament because we can be so wedded to what right in front of us our pain, our circumstances, that we miss what God is saying. And we listen through the filter of what we see. Oh, it's a bit, here's Thomas, he had unjustified doubt. 
A bit like Mary had her needless sorrow, Thomas has his unjustified doubt. And so we need to know our own temperament. Are you a worrier? A pessimist? Somebody who's so focused on what's right in front of us? An overthinker of things? Then know yourself and be careful that you don't slip into unjustified doubting of who God is, what his character is. And then there's a second thing that, that might cause him to have unjustified doubt. We read that Thomas was not with the disciples when Jesus came. He was absent when he should have been present. He was absent. We don't know why, but I don't think that he had just popped out for a few messages. Jesus seems to have spent a considerable amount of time with the disciples that evening. And it's strange that Thomas was absent. It's strange that, that he was away, given all that had already happened already that day, from first light that day, and given what had been happening over that dark and, and gloomy weekend. And his belief problem is fueled by his absence problem, whether it was intentional or accidental. And J.C. Ryle says this, we should mark in these verses how much Christians may lose out by not regularly attending the assemblies of God's people. How much we can lose out by not being regular in attending the assembly of God's people. In other words, not being regular at church. He says one thing is clear. By being absent, Thomas was kept in suspense and unbelief a whole week, while all around him were rejoicing in the thought of a risen Lord. And you know, I've seen this at times. When there's things that we've been looking at, maybe on a, on a Sunday morning or maybe on a Sunday evening or maybe at our midweek Bible study, God's people have gathered. They've been fed and nourished by God's word. And then I speak to someone and they say, oh, I'm really struggling with this. And I think, well, you know, we covered that in church on Sunday or we covered it at the Bible study or we covered it on Sunday evening. And if you had been there to hear it, your faith would have been built up and there wouldn't have been a chink in the armour for Satan to fire that arrow of doubt or temptation in through. And so let, it, let us make it our aim, especially in these days where it's, it's easy to be absent. Let us, let us make it our aim to be with God's people and to worship with them, even over the internet like this. Let us, let us make it our aim to, to worship with God's people, to be in our seat on a Sunday morning at 11 a.m., not just to think, well, you know, I'll watch it later. And to be there on a Sunday evening, to be fed again. So much we're learning from the book of Daniel, so potent and powerful for the world that we're living in. And on Wednesday evening at our midweek, we're going to be studying again our, the, the sermon from this morning. Come, come and be fed and nourished so that you are strengthened, so that Satan doesn't have a, a way in for doubt or worry or anxiety or temptation. Thomas's unjustified doubt. We've spent a right chunk of our time on this and we're, we're going to move on. But first of all, I just want to apply it. Maybe you're not a Christian this morning and you have your reasons for not believing. But rather than investigating them, or querying them, you park your soul behind this flimsy wall of doubt, hoping that God can't see you. But those doubts won't shield you from him. 
Let me encourage you to question those things that, that cause you doubt, to investigate Christianity, to come and to say, help me believe, help me overcome my unbelief. Maybe you're not a Christian and it wouldn't matter what God did, you wouldn't believe in him. Bertrand Russell, the philosopher, was once asked if he were to come to before God, what would he say? He said, not enough evidence, God, not enough evidence. You know, I think there's plenty of evidence for those who wish to see it. Just like Thomas had plenty of evidence. And maybe you need to be honest with yourself. And Jesus says to you this morning, stop disbelieving and believe. And maybe you are a Christian and you're harboring doubts about the character of God, the goodness of God, the love of God. And maybe, maybe even we could use those doubts to avoid obeying the commands of God or in our own hearts to, to justify to us, well, God didn't do that for me, so I don't need to obey him here. Or to be suspicious of God. Well, Jesus stands before you and calls you in light of the cross to throw away that unjustifiable questioning of God. He points us to the cross. This is how much God is committed to you. Yes, you don't yet understand these things, but don't persist in doubt. And for all of us, let us make sure that we know our own temperaments. And let us make sure that we're being fed and fueled by God's word. Thomas's unjustified doubt. And then secondly, Thomas's clear confession. Thomas's clear confession. Thomas had put himself in a bad place. And Jesus, we find, isn't going to leave him there. And what we have next is perhaps the, the, the high point, the climax of John's gospel. A week has gone by. They're gathered together again. The doors are locked. But this time Thomas is there. And Jesus again appears in the midst of them, despite the locked door. And not only do we see a supernatural appearing, but we find supernatural knowledge. Imagine Thomas's shock at seeing Jesus. And then imagine his sheepishness as Jesus repeats point for point what Thomas had said. Each demand, Jesus knew it all. Thomas had said, unless I see. Jesus says, see my hands. Thomas had said, and put my finger. Jesus said, put your finger here. Thomas had said, and put my hand into his side. Jesus says, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Every condition, Jesus knew it. Every doubt, Jesus was aware of it. And then this challenge, Thomas has said, I will not believe it. Jesus says to him, stop doubting and believe. Wow, Jesus knew it all. And yes, there's rebuke, but what gentle, patient compassion. What stooping to our level, and that's Jesus. Stooping down to help his people believe. Even when it's our fault that we don't believe, that we doubt, that we struggle. Jesus stoops to help. And we can say to him, I believe, but help me overcome my, my doubts, my struggles, my wrestles. You know, did Thomas reach out his hand? I don't know. But what we do know 
is that he obeyed instantly the command to stop doubting and believe. What a response from Thomas. He says, my Lord and my God. And Thomas the skeptic becomes Thomas the worshipper. Thomas isn't simply convinced that Jesus is alive, but that if Jesus is alive, he's got to be followed, my Lord, and he's got to be God, my God, he says. He's not simply a human being. And this has been the whole point of John's gospel. We read from John 1, his great claim, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. And Thomas, John had set out at the start to, 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 to claim this, and now Thomas says, this is it. It's as if John is saying, case closed, point proven. And see how wonderfully personal this great confession of his faith is, my Lord and my God. And that's what each of us needs to be able to say. My Lord and my God. Not just simply, Jesus is God. Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is alive. Those are facts. But Thomas knows that facts aren't enough. The facts can be true, but if they're true, we must make them personal. My Lord and my God. And maybe you're learning about the facts of Christianity. Or maybe you know them well and you believe that Jesus is God and that he died on the cross and that he rose again from the dead. Maybe you believe those facts. But can you say they're yours? That he's my Lord and my God. You know, I've met people who think they're Christian because they know the facts and they believe the facts to be true. Well, the devil knows the facts and believes that they're true. But he doesn't say, my Lord and my God. He doesn't have faith. He doesn't trust. Do you trust these truths? You know, Thomas' confession is wonderful. And we've held him up of, as an example of what not to do. But here John holds him up now again as an example of what to be like. Here's the climax of his gospel. Here's what faith is. No more wavering or doubts. And Thomas, history tells us, goes on to be the, the apostle who travels the furthest throughout Syria and Iran and right down into southern India where Lejo and Betsy and Solomon are from. And it was actually in India that Thomas, according to history and tradition, gave his life uh, in Chennai in Mylapore on July the 3rd, 72 AD. He was an apostle uh, or a missionary for 40 years after the resurrection. What faithful service. What a magnificent man he was. Thomas, who started with great unbelief, finishes with great belief. And that's a challenge to each of us who trust in Christ. What will we do with what we've seen and heard? What will we do with it? We confess that Jesus Christ is our Saviour and Lord, my Lord and my God. But what will we do with it? Will we take it and go to others with it like Thomas did? Two things that we want to see in closing, two more things. Thirdly, Jesus' great praise. Jesus' great praise. 
In verse 29, Jesus says, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I don't think Jesus is rebuking Thomas or saying that Thomas's faith is inferior. The apostles had to see. The whole point was that they were eyewitnesses. They had to have seen the resurrected Jesus so that you and I wouldn't have to. We can believe their testimony. But Jesus is drawing a contrast that Thomas and the disciples had seen and believed, but he knows that many will come who will not have that privilege, and they will believe without seeing. Are we less privileged? You know, do you ever wish you'd been there? That day Jesus rose from the dead. Well, Jesus has a special statement of blessing. A special blessing for those who believe without seeing. John is very sparse in recording blessing statements from Jesus. Matthew and Luke record all the Beatitudes. John only records two statements, and this is one of them, where Jesus has a particular word of delight and blessing for those who believe without seeing. That's you and me. We haven't seen the risen Jesus ourselves. We have faith that these things are true on account of all the evidence that has been given. And that delight that Jesus has in those who have faith, despite not seeing, applies to becoming a Christian and keeping going as a Christian. He has great delight when his people keep going and keep believing in spite of what we do see around us. There's so much of the Christian life is lived with faith in the unseen. We've got to believe that Jesus is coming back, that he's going to make everything new. We've got to believe that our guilty record is washed clean. We've got to believe that the hard things that are happening to us are for our good. We don't yet see it. We have to have faith in the unseen. And Jesus says, blessed are those who believe not having seen. And here's encouragement to you to start the Christian life this way and to keep going in it this way and to keep believing, to keep having faith whenever you can't see yet how things are going to turn out. Jesus, great praise. And then lastly, our great certainty. Our great certainty. John brings his gospel really to its conclusion here in verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John has cherry-picked seven miracles out of all the miracles Jesus did. He has picked out three sets of witnesses to the resurrection. He says there is an abundance of further evidence, but you don't need it to believe. We have a Saviour who has acted in history, who has appeared and spoken and taught and performed miracles. We have evidence. We have a Saviour whose identity is confirmed. He claimed to be the Messiah. He claimed to be the Son of God. And all the evidence laid out here points to that claim being true. And Thomas, the man whose doubts weren't even justified, 
comes to this conclusion as well. My Lord and my God, we have a Saviour who is to be trusted so that you might believe. We have a Saviour who through his death and resurrection gives life to those who trust him. How do we know? Well, he gave Lazarus life and he rose from the dead. He raises the dead and he rises from the dead. There's the proof. What more do we need? We have great certainty. We have great certainty. We have no reason for sustained doubt and disbelief. Bertrand Russell said, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. John says, Bertrand, there's plenty of evidence. I have written enough. The question is, will you go on in your unjustified unbelief? Or will you acknowledge Jesus, as Thomas says, as my Lord and my God? The same is true to anyone who's watching who's not yet put their trust in Christ. There's the evidence. Will you acknowledge Jesus as my Lord and my God? And those of us who are Christians, we have no grounds for continuing in any form of persistent doubt. John says, come and look at the Jesus I've told you about here. Come and meet Jesus. Come and let the light shine in the darkness of your souls. Come and stand before the risen Jesus. Look at his scars. Jesus says to Thomas, look at my scars. A God with scars. Why has he scars? He is scarred for your sake. You know, maybe your scars are the very things that cause you to doubt. Those great wounds that have happened in your life. And they cause us doubt. Look instead at Christ's scars. He understands your scars and he says, trust me, trust me, one day yours will be gone. Can we trust him with our scars, having seen what he's done with his, how they were for our good? So we have, as we stand in front of the risen Jesus, we have no reason for persisting in doubt, but every reason for certainty and confidence. So now let's go and serve him with a Thomas-like faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, how we thank you for Thomas in all his flaws and Thomas in all his faith. And Father, we pray that you would help us to be wise to our own temperaments and to our own needs and to see those times whenever doubt hasn't just landed but has taken root and has worked its way deep into our souls and help us to um, come and stand before the risen Lord Jesus so that we can have our doubts swept away and Father we pray for those that we know and love who have stacked up reasons for not trusting in Christ Lord, we pray that they would query and question those reasons and that they would doubt their doubts about Christianity and that they would come to Jesus and say, help me believe, help me overcome my unbelief and that they, they would hear him say, stop doubting and believe. And Father, we pray that you would help us in the midst of so much that is unseen in our faith 
to keep believing because of what we're told. We ask it for Jesus' sake and Jesus' glory. Amen.